I have in my hand uh, something that is going to need your attention. If you're at the back, you may not be able to see this. Let me help you. Okay, so here we go. Uh, University choir, what am I holding up? Okay, you can see the back of it. Okay, you can see the front. What is it? Just shout it out. All right, cookie, all right, orchestra, what am I holding in my hand? Orchestra doesn't want to say anything. <laughs> they feel like they're walking into a trap. No, what is this? Are you going to, a cookie, thank you, all right. All right, so you, you see what I have in my hand. What do I have in my hand? It's a biscuit. In his book, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, the author Douglas Adam recounts a story of the main protagonist of, his, uh, of the book called Arthur, who in 1976 is at a train station in Cambridge in England waiting for his train to come. Now, Arthur had gotten there a little too early, and because he had gotten there early, he went to get some refreshments, the story goes. Arthur went and he picked up a newspaper, he bought a cup of coffee, and he bought a packet of biscuits. He took his coffee, his newspaper, and his packet of biscuits, and he sat down at a table. When he sat down at the table, he was joined a few moments later by an innocuous-looking businessman wearing a business suit. Very normal-looking fellow. He picked up his newspaper, and then to his horror, he saw the normal, businessman across the table from him doing something abnormal. He picked up the, pack, the packet of biscuits, he opened it, he took a biscuit out, and he ate it. And so, of course, he looks at him and thinks, how absolutely rude, thank you. But like a good Englishman with a stiff upper lip, he decides that the only thing he can do in that moment is to ignore it. And so he ignores it, and he takes a biscuit himself, and he very slowly and deliberately eats it as a sign of resistance that his packet of biscuits has been um, chanced upon by this stranger. The stranger looks at him, he smiles, and then he also takes a biscuit, and he eats it. <laughs> this goes on. He eats a biscuit, the stranger eats a biscuit. Eight biscuits later, the packet is finished. The gentleman gets up, bits him a jaw, leaves, and he just cannot believe the temerity of this gentleman to have eaten his biscuits and then to say goodbye when he leaves. He sees his train pulling into his station, and then Arthur gets up, picks up his cup of coffee, his newspaper, and he's about to leave when he recognizes that on the table is a packet of unopened biscuits <laughs> that he had bought, and he had actually been eating the stranger's biscuits the entire time. Now, it's interesting to me, and I tell this story because all of us would feel absolutely mortified were we in the place of Arthur, that we have taken what belongs to someone else thinking it was ours. But I think all of us have been through situations like this, whether it's going through Safeway and you check out everything except for one packet of gum that you forget and you take it unwittingly and you leave without having paid for it. 
whether it's uh, being a, a, a property owner and recognizing that for so many years your property line was actually mismarked and you have been two feet into your neighbor's garden for years and you have taken the pleasure they ought to have had to yourself. Or maybe it's, um, uh, let, me, let me get the balcony, maybe it's because you spent the money which came into your checking account because you thought you just had a windfall, but you didn't recognize that your friend had cash-apped you twice by accident for the tacos last Tuesday. And so you have taken what was not yours, but there is nothing you can do about it. But we're talking about accidental taking. But it is even worse, I think all of us would agree, to take something by accident, but the worst is if you deliberately snatch for yourself what belongs to someone else. And this morning, we continue our book in the book of, our series in the book of Daniel, and we are in Daniel chapter 4, looking at an ancient story of someone who takes for themselves something that does not belong to them. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've uh, followed the progression when we were in Daniel chapter 1, and this entire story begins with Daniel and his three friends. They go to the royal courts of Babylon, and they are tested at the king's table. And when we came to Daniel 1, we concluded with this line, that to flourish in Babylon, our kingdom identity must be stronger than our empire name. And then we went to Daniel 2, where there's this grand image that went up nine or so stories and in this image, we have composite metals that delineate the ancient empires which would come, culminating with a rock coming from heaven, smashing the feet of the image and the kingdom of God being established. And we learned in Daniel chapter 2 that divine revelation of God's future obligates us to a sacred responsibility of God's people. We are not just given a revelation of the future and prophecy just so we can feel smug. It obligates us to a sacred responsibility. And then last week, we're in Daniel chapter 3, that story of the three Hebrew men at the fiery furnace. And we learned as we looked at the story that weaponized worship in any shape or form causes those who are conscientiously opposed to go into an existential crisis. If you push people who are conscientiously opposed to something, you actually push their very meaning and personhood. And we ended last week with this in Daniel chapter 3, that focus on the ultimate is clarifying in making decisions on the penultimate. And essentially we were saying that when you are making complex moral decisions— that are going to cost you, you have to be able to look beyond the moment and as a Christian, focus on the kingdom of God so you can make the right decision in the empire of Babylon. And now we're in Daniel 4. And Daniel 4 is a strange, strange story. We come to Daniel 4 and King Nebuchadnezzar is the author of the story. Unlike any other Old Testament book, we have a co-author who is a pagan king. And he essentially is giving us a sort of dear diary. He is telling us an experience that has happened in his life. And like the last chapters of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's had a vision. 
And he tells us in this sort of uh, dear diary entry that it terrifies him. And I imagine, and you might be able to imagine with me, here is a commander of the most violent and successful army to date in antiquity, who has seen bloodshed, who has seen traumatic things beyond what we can imagine, having a dream that terrifies him. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone who was a warrior told me I had a dream that terrifies me, I'm going to be thinking, listen, I have a weak stomach and a weak constitution, don't tell me, because if it scares you, it's going to absolutely scare the pants off me. But then you go to the story, and the dream, in my opinion, you could disagree, does not seem terrifying. It's weird, but it's not terrifying. Verse 7 of Daniel chapter 4 we find that Nebuchadnezzar, who in absolutely every other circumstance always goes to his magicians before going to Daniel, does the same thing again. This is what he says in Daniel 4.7, when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, and he's speaking in the first person, I told him the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. And then he calls in Daniel. As I was reading through this this week, as soon as I hit verse 7, I said, wow, that's me. I am Nebuchadnezzar, and you are Nebuchadnezzar. We live our lives, and we have habitual patterns of how we make sense of the world that may work as a temporary measure, but never give us the ultimate satisfaction and the meaning that we want. We consistently go to the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners in our life to try to give us meaning, because as human beings, we are meaning-making people. Whether you are an Adventist, whether you are a Buddhist, whether you are a Muslim, whether you are an agnostic, we try to make meaning out of life. And Nebuchadnezzar, every single time something happens he doesn't understand, he goes to this habitual place the Babylonian wise men to find meaning, and it never works. And then he has to come to Daniel, who represents the kingdom of heaven, to be able to find satiation and meaning in his life. And whatever you may be finding meaning in, ultimate meaning in your life today, whether it's your job, your family, whether it's the position that you have, whether it's the number of zeros in your bank account, you will find, like Nebuchadnezzar, that none of those can be stabilizing as a force for you to, to build your entire life around. Only when we have a divine reference point can we find ultimate satisfaction. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar, confused, doesn't know what's going on. And I think it's interesting that Daniel then comes in, his name meaning God is my judge, and he comes to give a correct verdict about the meaning of this dream. Verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking to Daniel, he says, I said, Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name, Daniel's Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. This baffles me, and that's why I've highlighted in yellow this uh, phrase that Nebuchadnezzar gives to Daniel, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
And if you've been in church all your life, if you've grown up in church, you've been to Sabbath schools, there is a very easy explanation, which is also a very wrong explanation, to say, oh yeah, Nebuchadnezzar can see that Daniel's got the Holy Spirit in him. So we make these Trinitarian conclusions. No, he is a pagan king. He has no idea about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is just trying to approximate what he can see in the life of Daniel. He does not know who the true God is. He is just trying to paint a picture of reality with the words that he has. And if this doesn't make sense, just think about this with me. For those of you who are working, for those of you who live lives surrounded by people who are not Christians, you know that this often happens. They'll look at you and they don't understand the life in which you live. They might tease you for it. They might say you're a little weird, but they may then say something like this. You're so inspirational. I mean, how do you do it? You're just so peaceful. How are you so calm all the time? How come you seem so grounded in your life? And they're just grasping at words to be able to explain the reality that the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. And he is activating and moving all that you do. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees this Uh, sees Daniel in Babylon, a minority, pushing against a cultural tsunami that goes against the values that he has been taught, the values that he knows the Bible is telling him, and yet even in the midst of this, people are able to recognize that there is something different about him. They are able to recognize that his life is better. And this is why we're looking at the book of Daniel, because we often can give ourselves a false story that, well, we live in such a secular age and a secular society, and there is nothing we can do. Well, Daniel shows us otherwise. The Spirit of God can be so alive in your life that those who are around you will notice and will be affected by it. And so we go to verses 10 to 18, and Nebuchadnezzar gives this dream. And then verses 19 to 27, Daniel gives the interpretation. And so for those who uh, don't go to church, you've never read this story, let me give it to you in some short blows. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar has this weird dream where there is a tree, not just a small tree, but a giant, enormous tree that is in the middle of the land that spreads all the way up and touches the heavens, that has trees that bow out all the way to the ends of the earth. And then inside of this huge, almost cosmic tree, you have the birds of the air, you have animals of the fields who come to it for food, for shelter, for protection. And it's an incredible tree. But oh no, as the dream goes on, something comes down and cuts the tree. It doesn't cut it completely, It leaves a stump in the ground with a band of bronze around it. And then this unnamed person who is in the dream all of a sudden becomes insane. He starts to grow eagle-like feathers like an eagle. His nails start to grow long. And then he goes into the field for seven years and eats grass. It's weird. It's completely weird. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, what is this? And Daniel gives him the interpretation because all the time, Nebuchadnezzar thinks this has got to be a prophecy about my enemies. Because in ancient time, you have the Medo-Persians and the Greeks who are having dreams where trees are usually uh, telling you something important is going to happen. And so he thinks, oh, this is good. My enemies are going to be cut down. Great Babylon will exist forever. And then in verse 22, Daniel gives him this response, and there is just a massive plot twist. Daniel says, your majesty, you are that tree. And if this was reality TV, there would have been some dramatic music and a cut for a commercial. (laughs) And so verse 25, he goes on and he says to him, you are going to live like an animal, and you will do so until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And this, to me, is an incredible thing Daniel has done. I think I read the Bible, you read the Bible, and you might read this and be like, yeah, this is a really long chapter. Why is this important, Andres? It's important because you have someone who is a slave in Babylon who is speaking to the most powerful person in the world something that could get him killed. He's not telling him you're going to win the lottery. He's not telling him his future is full of blessings. He's telling him that he is going to be cut off. And we find this over and over and over again. As people of the kingdom living in Babylon, we find that there is a summons to be truth tellers even when it's not popular. Over and over again they do it. They do it in Daniel chapter 1. They do it in Daniel chapter 2. They do it in Daniel chapter 3. They tell the truth even when it's not popular, even when it puts them at risk of a comfortable and safe life. I do have to bracket this and say, because of the climate in which we live in, that the way they tell the truth as believers of God is not in an obnoxious, politically charged, splenetic way that we see on the airwaves and the radio waves every day in America. They are not obnoxious about it. They are not picketing funerals with banners. But they speak with courage, with conviction, with clarity. Every single time they are given the opportunity to come before the king. They tell the truth. And they recognize that they have a duty of care to the truth of God while they are living as citizens in Babylon. And so Daniel gives him the advice. This is the truth, he says to the king. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Act 1 ends curtain comes down, act two, scene one, you think, well, he's been told what's going to happen. You know, you're going to walk off a cliff, Nebuchadnezzar, so you're going to expect him to turn around, right, and not walk off the cliff. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Because apparently Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the memo. And the the Bible says this, and I think it's really technical language, uh, balcony, and I know you would understand what I'm saying, even though the Bible doesn't say this, it's not necessarily in the Aramaic. What the Bible says happens after he is given this warning is that scene two, act one, we see Nebuchadnezzar 
on the roof of the palace of Babylon. And he is, using that ancient term, flexing. Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> is showing off all that he has. I have in my mind's eye him on a bright, beautiful, Instagram-ready day. He has his phone out. He's taking pictures of his chariots with his 20-inch rims on it that he just got. I see Nebuchadnezzar taking pictures of the hanging gardens that he has built for his wife, that she is loving, you know, and that she has on a, you know, uh, Insta page that she puts up all the time saying, I love my husband. He's the best. She's taking pictures. Isn't it good? I imagine that Nebuchadnezzar takes out his phone and he is about to take a picture with his squad. He has the wise men in the background. He's like, hey guys, come in, come in. He's about to take the picture, <laughs> right? He's taking the picture. Nebuchadnezzar has taken it. And then he's writing his um, caption underneath it. And as he writes the caption underneath it, I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar writing underneath this picture, is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And then he puts hashtag squad, hashtag bless, hashtag no one's gonna, you know, <laughs> why are you laughing? Do you use those hashtags on your pictures? And so Nebuchadnezzar has these words of pride on his lips. There is a linguistic bridge between his pride and then, a summer, uh, and then a punishment which comes immediately following. Nebuchadnezzar wrongly attributes the pride and the power that he has to himself. And then we see him in verse 31 and 32, this happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar forgets and misattributes his success to himself. He takes what belongs to someone else, and he thinks is his. And as I read the rest of Daniel, it's a sobering, sobering lesson for me and for all of us, even though we are centuries removed from the book of Daniel, it's so pertinent for us today. Because we learn some things, I learned as I read this, that pride really is a form of plagiarism. It's attempting to grasp for yourself the glory that belongs to God. At bottom, that is what pride is. And then if it's unrepented, if it's intractable pride, we find that unrepentant pride becomes a form of insanity, seeking to capture for ourselves the glory that belongs only to God. And so Daniel chapter 4 seems to me to be some kind of poetic mo uh, motif of the danger of pride. That if you are so proud, you will get to the stage in your life where one day you start to attribute your success only to yourself and forget that there is a God in heaven who gives you your life and your very breath. And this insanity that he has, losing touch with reality, is really what pride is. You lose touch with reality. You're in an ulterior universe. You don't live appropriately. And every time humanity is trying to be like God, it is insanity. It looks like a terrible replica. Imagine with me if 
you will that one day you have gone on holiday, beautiful vacation, and as you've gone, you've um, gone to the local market to pick up some, some, some trinkets. And then you see your husband. He's excited because he's like, babe, I found a phenomenal deal. Come and look at this. You're like, okay. Um, so you go, and he holds up a sweatshirt. And he says, look, it's phenomenal. It's like 70% cheaper than it is in the state. Should I buy it? In fact, let's get one for everyone in the family. And then you're like, babe, just a second, read it. And he's like, yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is such a great deal. Why are you hating on me? And, and you're like, no, babe, read it. And he's like, oh, yeah, Abidas, no, it's a fake, it's a replica. Imagine that you are um, going through life and you have your father who, bless his heart, has just found out about eBay. And he's like, yeah, I'm getting the best deals on eBay. I am not going to go shopping anywhere else but eBay. And you see over his shoulder, your dad is about to hit set. He's about to hit buy. And then you're like, dad, read it. And, you, and he's like, what are you talking about? You're like, dad, no, read it. Read what? Read it. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not Nike, dad. And he's like, oh, okay, my bad. I got you. I, replicas are just trying to take a form of the real, but they never can be the same. I'm sure some of us have been on holiday and seen replicas like this, where you're desperate for something, and you're like, yeah, let me <laughs> grab a grande, and you're like, yeah, nope, this is not what I think it is. Or perhaps you've been in a situation where you were just desperate for some therapy, buy chocolate, and then you go into a store, and you're like, yeah, let me get a... <laughs> cat cot and hope I don't die. <laughs> and this is my favorite because we're in the Northwest. Look at this. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the huge mountain. And you find even with these replicas that replication is, is usually not a victimless crime. And when we plagiarize the glory of God and we take it onto ourselves, we are told in the book of Daniel that there are consequences. And it's weird to me. I would never have gone in this direction as a terminal point for pride. But we are told when we, when we read in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar is in danger because of his pride of oppressing those who are weak and those who are poor. And it's just weird to me. Why would you make this connection, Daniel, between pride and oppression? Why would you make that? It doesn't really seem to follow. And it seems to me, as I thought about it, that when we misattribute our success and we try to replicate what God has given to us, Rather than being grateful recipients of grace, we become misinformed replicas of pride. And Nebuchadnezzar had to recognize that his position and that his power were not a reward for his merits, but a gift of divine grace. Because the other meta theme in Daniel 4 is this idea about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar has to understand that his position, his power, his success does not come because he's just so great, but because it's a gift of divine grace and that he has to stop using his power to further his own personal kingdom, but use his position and his power to benefit the weak and the oppressed. And this is, is, this is how the Bible gets me. You know, sometimes you read the Bible, there are names you don't understand. It's thousands of years ago, you think, how does this make any sense to me? I want to change the world. I want to make a difference. Why am I reading the Bible? Why doesn't it say anything which makes any sense? And then, bam, there's a pagan king who is being humbled because of pride, and then he is told to do justice. He's told to work for those who are oppressed and those who are weak. What could be more relevant than that today? Daniel shows us, as we read the story, that for the king to flourish, he has to repent of his oppression and of his pride and see that God is the king of all kings. And today, we see pride in all quarters of the world. I think about my um, country where I lived in for so long in England. I think about the pride which is on display as I think about our prime minister, our newly installed prime minister, and, and watching him bumble around and ignore parliamentary acts and push forward. And even as you look at all of these political shenanigans going on, there are people who are being, who are suffering because of it. There are businesses that are closing. There are people who are watching the power plays of the powerful, but their everyday life is getting worse. And it seems to me there is a sense of pride, not just in the prime minister, but in all the politicians to do the right thing as opposed to do the thing which is best for them. Prime ministers, we have presidents around the world who are making decisions uh, that, have human that have terrible humanitarian consequences without regard for the people who are going to be killed, without regard for the lives which will be upended, but rather making decisions with an eye on the pole. There are mayors around the country who are in corrupt offices, lining their pockets, while the person on the street suffers. That's why pride is not a victimless crime. And that is why pride can lead to those who are weak and who are oppressed, having lives which become grinding and even worse. And then I think about myself. Pride is manifest in parents who look at their children and say, look at this beautiful straight-A child that I have made. <laughs> who gets incredible financial scholarship and makes my monthly payments so much lower. Look at this incredible student that I made. Took them to extracurricular activities, gave them extra tutoring. This is my image. And we have pride in our children, and of course you should be proud, but to the extent where the glory is taken from God, we see from Nebuchadnezzar, it is a slippery path. We have students who are so enamored with their grades and with their lives, and with all that they've been given, they forget that it is God who has given them the mental acuity, the intelligence, the wisdom to be able to live and to... Uh, be in a place where they can flourish and they can do well. We see pride evident in the lives of CEOs who have no regard to cut 500 
jobs, but will never take even a 0.5 deduction in their yearly salary. And so because of their pride, other people suffer, people cannot take their kids to school, but they can still continue to have their mansions on either coast and also a cabin in the mountains. Pride proliferates in society around us. And Daniel says that if we do not recognize that all we have has been given to us by God, we end up being oppressive in how we live our life. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we can start to misattribute who has given us what we have. The leaders, the Jewish leaders in the day of Jesus also made the same mistake of attribution that Nebuchadnezzar did. They regarded their position, their power, and their prestige as a sign that they were superior to those around them. They saw people's poverty and affliction, a sign that they had been given grace and favor by God, and those other people had not. And then, because they saw that as a sign that God had left them, they saw people who were in poverty or in affliction or who were downtrodden as actually being deserving of it, because after all, God gave this to me, and he didn't give it to you, and so I don't need to do anything to help them. And then you have Jesus thundering in Matthew 23, verse 4, accusing the Pharisees of stealing widows' houses. And yet, this afternoon, as I think about our topic, Flourishing in Babylon, I cannot end without sharing with you uh, what um, made me uncomfortable reading this text, what has actually been ringing through my head as the Holy Spirit leapt out of these pages. And I wonder what the Holy Spirit is calling you to as you seek to live a life of faithful presence in Babylon. And as you seek not to be like Nebuchadnezzar and to live a life of pride which plagiarizes what only belongs to God. Perhaps it's your growing company. The bottom line is just good. Just always in the black. Perhaps God is calling you with your profitable company, with your sharp intellect, with your good looks, with your incredible health, with your wonderful family, to recognize that all of it is derivative from God. You did not do that yourself. God is calling you to recognize that to flourish, you must recognize every single day who has given you the success you have. And perhaps in your life, proof of that recognition is going to be you leave here today and you start to think differently about that cousin. You know the cousin I'm talking about. He is always in and out of prison. He is the black sheep of the family. She is the one that causes everyone to hush their conversation when she enters the room. Nothing she seems to do goes right. She goes from pillar to post, from, um, from crisis to crisis. And you've already given up. You said, well, you know, God gave me success. Didn't give it to her. She's still trying to figure out a GED. Tough luck. And like Babylon and like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, you say, well, look at my life. Look at my family. Look at all that I have built. And as a consequence, those who are downtrodden and oppressed, you do not regard or you do not help. Perhaps you're going to leave here. And as you think about the pride that King Nebuchadnezzar was warned about, you will think differently about your neighbors, the ones who moved in and who from the very beginning you knew this was going to be trouble. 
the ones that you hear through the walls every single night, yelling, screaming at each other because it's so dysfunctional and toxic. And yet you have decided to do nothing. You do not even pray for them. You have left them to live a life where they will continue to be unsuccessful, downtrodden, and weak. You say, well, it has nothing to do with me. I made the right decisions. I went to the right school. I did the right thing. I worked. They didn't. Tough luck. And you'll think about Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll realize that it was the grace of God, of course, with your hard work, which gave you what you have. And that power is given to you, not to accrue, but then to give to those who do not have it. And so you might think differently about your cousin, about your neighbor, about your oppressed brothers and sisters all around the globe, that you might be able to help and take regard for with the success that God has given to you. That it may not take us growing hair like the feathers of an eagle or nails like the claws of a bird to join Nebuchadnezzar in recognizing the final words of Daniel chapter 4. Let's read it together. This is the denouement of the chapter. He recognizes and says this, the king of heaven, everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. May it not take this verse for us to properly attribute all glory to God and to live our lives and to recognize the success that we have been given is a trust so we can help those who are in worse situations than us. Amen.